Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. So we have two readings this morning. The first is from Micah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And if you have one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 1,445. So this is a promised ruler from Bethlehem. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem of Pathrith, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she gives who is in labor gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. And our next reading is Matthew chapter 1, The Genealogy of Jesus, and that's page 1496. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Menimadad. Amenadad, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 
14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. We should give Cindy a round of applause, right, for getting through that while we're reading. I gave Cindy like a whole week to practice. Um, I let her know, we're going to do Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17 uh, at church on Sunday. And she's like, thanks. Yeah. Um, I, I, um, if you know me a little bit, uh, I love top fives. I've got a top five of lots of things. I've got a top five beaches in Australia. I've got a top five um, beers that I've ever drunk. I've got a top five smells. Um, which is sort of changes a little bit as I discover a new smell. Got top fives of all kinds of things. I've also got a top five Bible passages that I love of all time. And guess what? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17 is in my top five Bible passages of all time. And you're sitting there going, are you for real? Um, we're starting a, a little Advent series this week. Um, and you may be sitting there going, that seems ridiculous, Simon, to, or totally ridiculous and implausible to spend a week in Advent as we build up to the coming of the Lord Jesus, a week in a list of boring names in Matthew chapter 1. But I want to say straight up that gene genealogy sometimes really matter. Um, not always. Genealogies don't always matter, and they certainly don't really matter in my case personally. Um, I don't have a very fancy or significant sort of genealogy in many ways. I come from uncouth Australian stock, basically, um, with a little throwback to Scotland as far as I know. Nothing remarkable, right? So if you know the film Braveheart, Mel Gibson's Braveheart, um, I'm that group who lifted their kilts to the British, right? Um, th that's my family. They're my relatives. But a friend of mine, on the other hand, um, is royalty. Um, my friend is a direct descendant of Robert the Bruce. Um, she's like the great, 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 great granddaughter of Robert the Bruce. My friend is actually really proud of her ancestry. And in a perverse kind of way, she's also proud of this little chink in her ancestry um, that is quite a contrast to the royal line. Uh, apparently, one of her forebears is the founder of Armitage Shanks, the fine British toilet makers. There you go. Um, or as they described themselves in 1817, when they were founded, they are, quote, sanitary pottery manufacturers, from which we get the word potty. There you go. If you learn nothing else today, that's where it comes from. So my friend, unlike me, purebred uncouth, my friend comes from both royalty and toiletiers. There you go. And she's really proud of the contrast in both sides of her family. Now, I say that because the genealogy that Matthew gives us of Jesus has this really incredible contrast in it um, that isn't so much humorous but profoundly theological. So there's this kind of royal line going through the genealogy. Um, so I'm not going to dwell on that so much today, right? But just quickly to say, um, Matthew shows us in this genealogy that Jesus is the long-awaited descendant of King David. So there's royalty who according to the promises for us recorded in the Old Testament, this one descended from David would gain eternal universal authority. 
And when you see that, right, it opens up Matthew's gospel. The rest of Matthew's gospel unpacks how Jesus has eternal, universal authority in passage after passage after passage. Um, Jesus' authority as a teacher, Jesus' authority as a healer, and ultimately his authority as the Son of God to be the Savior of the world How is he, as he dies on a cross, rises again. And in the climactic passage of Matthew's gospel, the very last paragraph, Matthew wants to stress this universal authority of the Lord Jesus, this descendant of David. The final paragraph, it's really important because we'll get back to it this morning. Here it is, I think, coming up on the screen. Then, this is the very last words of Matthew's gospel. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. From the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 to what we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus' authority is stressed. That's all I want to say on that today. But there's actually a contrasting theme in Matthew's gospel that I want to draw out for us this morning that can be traced from the beginning to the end. You see, there's scandal in Jesus' family tree. It turns out that in the list of names of Jesus, or some of Jesus' ancestors, there are sinful and inglorious people right alongside some holy and kind of majestic ones as well. Matthew bends over backwards to make sure we spot this, that his point is not just ancestral, but it's theological. The point of the genealogy of Jesus and all of Matthew's gospel is to make clear this, that Christ's mission is to include the outsider, restore the wrongdoer, and save all nations. Include the outsider, restore the wrongdoer, and save all nations. That's the mission of Christ. Now you may be thinking right now, Jacko, how do you get that from a genealogy, a list of names? What I want to do this morning is convince you that Matthew really is setting this up from the beginning and then tracks all the way through the gospel. Matthew shows us that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah from the line of King David. But he also wants to show us the contrast that Jesus has come for outsiders, for wrongdoers, to save all nations. And what I want to do right up is show you how Matthew breaks all the rules. Um, I don't know if you know, like, so the genealogy that we had read out that I hope you have in front of you, the genealogy that we had read out is basically male, right? Did you hear that? It's basically male. You see that. This bloke was the father of this bloke, who then was the father of this bloke or these blokes, right? And that's perfectly normal in the ancient world. That's what you'd expect in an ancient genealogy. Uh, glance down to the opening lines. Opening lines of the genealogy, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, right? So male, 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 males, everywhere. Um, it's what you'd expect. But as the passage was read by Cindy, I don't know, did you, did you notice, and readers, ancient readers who heard or read this for the first time, they'd also notice with significantly elevated curiosity that women are mentioned five times. Five times. So verse three, Tamar, 
Verse 5, Rahab and Ruth. Verse 6, Uriah's wife. And verse 16, Mary. Now at one level, right, every man mentioned in chapter 1 has a mum, right? Um, That's what happened in the ancient world. And it's actually what happens in the modern world these days as well. People come from a mum and a dad, right? So there's, it's implied. But why are these women mentioned? Now, I could say heaps about women in Matthew's Gospel, um, but, but why are these women mentioned here in chapter 1? I think it's more than simply promoting women. I think there's a theme that runs through promoting women in all of Matthew's Gospel. I suspect Mary, for example, is there right at the end in verse 16 because she's a participant in the rest of the story as it unfolds. But why the four women way back in Jesus' ancestry? There's no point in a a male genealogy. The key is what we know of these women from the Old Testament. All four of them had questionable status in the ancient world and yet were included in God's plan. This is the key to understanding this part of the genealogy. Um, So look with me at uh, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar. Who was Tamar? Everyone in Matthew's audience knew exactly who she was. And they're also wondering, how did she get a mention in Matthew chapter 1? Because the story in Genesis 38, right, note that down, Genesis 38, where we meet Tamar. Um, Tamar is a pagan. She's not a Jew. She's a Canaanite pagan. And because she wants children and her husband won't give her any, she dresses up as a temple prostitute, seduces her father-in-law Judah, and it's from that relationship that Perez and Zerah come. Everyone in Matthew's audience knew that and would surely have stopped to think like why Matthew makes this little side remark to bring the story of Tamar into it. I mean, you've got to ask the question, right? What's Judah, a Jew, doing visiting a temple prostitute? You need to ask that question. But Tamar. Then we get the mention of two mums in verse five. Two mums. Um, so Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was, say it with me, Rahab. Why mention mum? Why mention her? We know about Rahab. She's in Joshua chapter 2. She too is a pagan. She's a non-Jew. She's a foreigner. She's an outsider living in Jericho. She's not part of the people of Israel. She's actually a prostitute, not just dressing up as one. In the story, right, we're meant to ask the question, what are the Jewish spies who are meant to be out spying the promised land doing in Rahab's house? There are all kinds of weird things going on in this story. But the point seems to be that because Rahab is a Gentile, a non-Jew, and has this interesting career, Matthew wants to mention her. And you've got to ask the question, why? When it's not normal to mention women in a genealogy, why these women? And then there's another mum, verse 5, Ruth. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now, Ruth wasn't a prostitute, and she wasn't a lookalike prostitute either, but Ruth is a Gentile. 
She's a foreigner, and more than that, does anyone recall Ruth's kind of ethnic or line? Anyone know? She's a, yeah, thanks, Cindy. Moabite. She was a Moabite. And everyone knew, right, that the Moabites were the arch enemies of Israel. And yet if you read the book of Ruth, Ruth gets a whole book named after her in the Old Testament, God beautifully draws this enemy of Israel into the family of Israel, and she becomes the great-grandmother of King David. Amazing. Well, if this wasn't enough scandal already for one family, we read in verse 6, and this one alludes to Bathsheba. David, or King David, was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. I mean, this is Bathsheba, who's mentioned in 2 Samuel 11. It's an odd way to put it, isn't it? This mum was Uriah's wife. Why does Matthew use that sort of language? Seems designed to recall the scandal of 2 Samuel 11, which everyone in Matthew's original audience knew. Um, Here's the story, right, if you're not familiar with it. Um, Uriah is a Hittite. He's a pagan. And he marries Bathsheba, who is apparently beautiful. She's likely a pagan too, given that she's married to Uriah, a Hittite. David, King David's up high in his Jerusalem palace, and he looks down and he sees Bathsheba bathing naked. He summons her. He has sex with her. And she becomes pregnant. And to solve the complexity of the situation that's arisen, David has Uriah killed, his royal romance flourishes and they get married and Bathsheba becomes David's favoured wife. Why the mention? Matthew is clearly trying to recall for ancient readers that there is scandal in the Messiah's family tree. There are foreigners. There are shady ladies, if I can even say that. And even shadier blokes, there's sin and impurity. There's foreign blood in the Messiah's line. Do you see the point? This is also why the exile is mentioned several times in the genealogy. Do you notice that? Again, Matthew expects you to know all this stuff. Sorry if it feels a little bit boring this morning. But take a look at verse 11. Verse 11, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And then after, verse 17, if you missed it, after the exile, thus were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. The Babylonian exile was really significant. This is where in 586 BC, the Babylonians came into Jerusalem and crushed Jerusalem and sent all the Jerusalemites off to Babylon as exiles. Now, everyone who knew the story of Israel knew this wasn't just a kind of tragic political part of history. This was God's just punishment on Israel for its long history of decadence, of sinfulness of both its men and women, of Israel. 
So it's like Matthew is deliberately contrasting simultaneously, telling us about the royal descent of Jesus from the line of David and also telling us that there is sin and impurity in his family line. The point, of course, is that Jesus, the sinless Messiah, entered our sinful history in order to redeem it. Or as we said earlier, Christ's mission is to include the outsider Restore the wrongdoer and save all nations. And once you spot that in the genealogy, you're ready to see it play out in the rest of Matthew's gospel. We don't have time to go through all of Matthew's gospel, but let me just give you some snapshots of how this same theme plays out from the genealogy all the way through to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, the last paragraph of the gospel. So if you have your Bible in front of you, the very next passage that comes after the genealogy, which we're actually going to look at next week at our carol service. Remember, um, announcement from Cindy, don't come here next Sunday and don't come to church in the morning. Next, Well, you can go somewhere else, but we won't be doing church in the morning. 6.30, gelato, espresso, hey, and then um, Carol, 7 p.m. So that's when. So, but next week, right, the next passage in Matthew's gospel, which we're going to look after that, uh, that next week, the next passage names Jesus. The classic Christmas passage, Matthew chapter 1. It's coming up. And angel of the Lord appeared to him, Joseph, in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will, say it with me, save his people from their sin. Again, Matthew expects us to know a little bit of Hebrew. Jesus, Yeshua, literally translates into Yahweh, the Lord saves. The very name Jesus tells you what the genealogy tells you. The Messiah has entered into our sinful history precisely to save us. And then you think, right, for a second, who are the first people in Matthew's gospel who come to worship the Messiah? Who are the first people? Yeah, the Magi, right? The Jewish Messiah. Who are they? It's the foreign magi. Don't worry about the, the hymn, like the old song, right? We three kings. Of... They're not kings, right? They're not kings. They're pagan astrologers, certainly from Babylon, right? So whenever the Bible says from the east, it basically means from Babylon, from a, where Jerusalem is in relation to Babylon, right? They come, Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, right? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Jesus has Gentiles in his bloodline, and the first people to come and worship him are Gentiles from the east. This theme, right, just continues all the way through Matthew's gospel as Jesus grows up. Who does he call to be his disciples and messengers? Sinners. Like Matthew himself, the author of this gospel. The author of the gospel, Matthew, writes himself. He shares his testimony in Matthew chapter 9. Here we go, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew speaking. While Jesus was having dinner at you know what Matthew could have done there? He could have just said, while Jesus was having dinner at my place, he could have said that, right? Oh, how cool would that be? Jesus was around my place. 
But he doesn't. Third person, right? My, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, what does your teacher, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, they're in my blood. They're in my blood. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And if that weren't enough, Jesus dies for sinners, rises to new life, and then sends his disciples out in the Great Commission, the end of Matthew's Gospel, with these extraordinary words again. They're coming up. Hey, then Jesus came to them, these disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus has got the nations in his blood. Jesus has got the nations on his mind. Jesus has got the nations on his heart. Christ's mission is to include the outsider, restore the wrongdoer, and save all nations. From the genealogy to the Great Commission and onwards to his return, this is what Christ is on about. And I hope you realise that this isn't just like a literary theme. I love to draw out these literary threads in the Gospels because I like to show how the Gospels, I like to show particularly to adults how the Gospels are more sophisticated than they thought they ever were, that the Gospels aren't just for Sunday school or city kids next door, that the Gospels, as with the whole Bible, is perhaps some of the most sophisticated literature the world has ever known. This is not just a literary theme. This is a core conviction of the Christian life. God in Christ is on about including the outsider, restoring the wrongdoer, and saving all nations. And I wouldn't be doing my job this morning if I didn't end with at least two really obvious challenges. The first... Do you know this salvation? Do you know this salvation for which Christ came? Because whoever you are, wherever you are from, and whatever you have done, Christ was born for you. Whatever you have done, wherever you are from, Whoever you are, Christ was born for you. He lived, he died, he rose again for you. To include you, to restore you, and to save you. I love that we are a church, City Light Church in North Adelaide, where we regularly see visitors and friends come and worship with us. Um, some people who are just checking out Christianity, you're always welcome. 
And I can promise that we're not going to be one of those churches that is really, 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 really pushy, pushy, pushy on you. But Advent is a fantastic season to get clarity about Jesus and why he came. He came not just to teach. He came not just to be a good example of what it means to be human. He came to save. That's his name. That's what he's on about. We talk about the Easter message, don't we? Jesus died and he rose again. Yes, yes, absolutely. But he also came at Christmas and through his whole life to save. That's what Jesus is on about. Do you know this salvation? Personally. I put up on Facebook this week that I do think Advent is a really great time to get clarity on who Jesus is and why he came. And I put out an offer on Facebook that if you want clarity on why Jesus came, I'll shout your lunch. If you're here today and you want greater clarity on why Jesus came, you're not sure why he came, I'll take you out for lunch. It'll be stale bread with some old ham. No, no. (laughs) It won't be lobster thermidor, okay? It'll be tasty. But I'll, I'll clear my diary. I'll come and meet with you. Do you know this salvation? And I think there's an equally obvious challenge for those of us who do know this salvation. The second challenge is Christ's mission your passion? Is Christ's mission your passion? It's no accident, right, that Matthew's gospel opens by telling us about the foreigners and the sinners in Jesus' family tree and closes with Jesus sending out his disciples to go get all those foreigners and those sinners from all nations. It's not an accident. This is what God is on about. Is it our passion? Is it my passion? Is it our passion at City Light Church North Adelaide all the time, but particularly now as we lead into this Advent series in the Christmas season? I've had the privilege in my time as a Christian and my time as a leader to go and visit parts of the world and to teach pastors around the world. A few years ago, uh, my last trip was to India, uh, where I got to teach for two weeks pastors and church leaders in India down south in a place called Salem. And at one, on one particular occasion, at one of the conferences, the conference, even, one of the evenings in the conference was just given over to prayer. And there was a room full of about 500 pastors from across India and a few from Nepal who were just on their knees praying for their nation. Tears coming down their eyes, their faces, praying that the good news of the Lord Jesus would sweep across the land of India and save souls. And I remember sitting there as an evangelical pastor watching these men and women with tears streaming down their eyes, fervent prayer. And I kind of sat there a bit cold But they were so moved because Christ's mission was their passion. And I I sat there and I wondered, does, am I driven 
to love my Saviour? And am I driven as a result to have a passion for Christ's mission? What does it mean for us to have Christ's mission as our passion? I think it's going to mean a few things. Here's one. I think it's going to mean us as followers of Jesus taking a few more risks. A few more risks at work, with our family, at uni, at the gym, the cafe, at the pub. A few more risks to be open about your faith in the Lord Jesus, especially in times right where it's a little bit more, I think, maybe embarrassing to be a Christian. Or am I the only person? A little more risk to convey Christ to others. It's got to mean at least that. What about inviting people to church? For our Christmas carols gathering next Sunday. For our Christmas gathering on Saturday the 25th coming up. Or inviting people to what we hope to do next year, Alpha, run the Alpha course after Easter. Or we're going to open next year by looking at Matthew chapter 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. We just open up the Matthew, Matthew's Gospel and let Jesus kind of shine from the pages. We're inviting people to church. I think it'll also mean generosity, you know, money. If you've been around church for the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about money. I don't want to go on about that too much, but I think for Christ's mission to be our passion will mean generosity to missionaries. Money is crucial to the advancement of the gospel. What you give to this church, what you give to missionaries, what we might give to people like our sister Christine as she goes and does a ministry apprenticeship over the next couple of years what it might mean to support our brother and sister Mikey and Naomi as they work with Missionary Aviation Fellowship down the track, taking the good news and serving people all over the place. All about making Christ known. I think it'll mean taking risks. I think it'll mean inviting people to places where they can meet Jesus. I think to have Christ's mission as our passion will mean generosity. But I think most of all, this passion for Christ's mission will mean prayer. It'll mean prayer. Praying for people who don't yet know Christ. I reckon this is the simplest and the truest test of whether Christ's mission is your, is my passion. If you find yourself praying for those who don't yet know Christ. Is Christ's mission your passion. Brothers and sisters, my prayer this Advent is that absolutely everyone in our community would first know about Christ's salvation for themselves and second, have a passion, not just on our faces, but in our hearts, a passion for playing our part in Christ's mission to the end of the earth. And Christ's mission was to include the outsider, restore the wrongdoer, and save all nations. It's what God in Christ is on about, still to this day.
Let's pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you and thank you for this season of the year uh, where we are again called to wait. Uh, wait for the wonderful gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, where we remember his first coming. Father, we thank you for what we've heard today from your word. Father, we thank you for the way that not only is Jesus connected to royal lineage, but he's also connected to scandalous people. We thank you, Father, for the way that Jesus is a saviour for all and for all time. And so, Father, prepare our hearts to remember again Jesus' first coming, but more than that, prepare our hearts for his second coming. Remember, we, Lord, we remember he came first and foremost in his first advent as saviour. We're reminded that his second coming will be to come to judge the living and the dead and to make all things right and to establish the new creation. Father, help us to be all prepared for his coming, which could be any time. Father, by your Holy Spirit, move us to embrace Christ's mission as our passion. Help us to be willing to take risks. Father, open up opportunities for us to invite friends, family, colleagues to events coming up, both at Christmas and into the new year. Father, help us to be men and women who are captured by the good news of Jesus and are generous with our money and our time and our talents. And Father, help us ultimately to be men and women who are prayerful. Prayerful for those who don't yet know Christ. Father, make us more like your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.